series in 1 John today. We'll be in chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. We have one more message in this series next week before we start the Advent season. So we'll take a break during Advent. And by the way, um, we sent out something about it. We're doing an Advent calendar as a church. So if you have a submission, um, you can get that in. Short video of a, of a Christmas carol or a recipe, just there's a bunch of things we listed for ideas just to contribute. It doesn't have to be perfect. Uh, it's, it's a King of Grace family advent calendar um, thing that we're doing so that we'll get to enjoy that during, um, dur- during December together. So I just want to remind you about that. We're looking forward to celebrating together as a church the wonder of the incarnation, Christ, God becoming man uh, and becoming Jesus Christ of Nazareth and the wonder of that. So we're in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24, um, and I actually want to just dig right in and read it and then go from there this morning. Let me pray first, though, and ask God's blessing on the reading and hearing of his word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your living word that, that brings life to us and guides us, trains us, corrects us, refreshes us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for... Um, the gift of teaching and preaching, and I ask you to use me, Lord, to serve your precious people, to glorify your name, and help us to hear from you, God. We're hungry for you. We need you more than we know. So speak to us through your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, the Apostle John says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this shall we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. God's word, 1 John 3, 10 through 24. Ralph Neighbor, a pastor of Houston's West Memorial Baptist Church, tells the following story. Jack had been president of a large corporation. 
And when he got cancer, they ruthlessly dumped him. He went through his insurance, used his life savings, and had practically nothing left. I visited him with one of my deacons, who said, Jack, you speak so openly about the brief life you have left. I wonder if you're prepared for your life after death. Jack stood up, livid with rage. You blankety-blank Christians, all you ever think about is what's going to happen to me after I die. If your God is so great, why doesn't he do something about the real problems of life? He went on to tell us he was leaving his wife penniless and his daughter without money for college. Then he ordered us out. Later my deacon insisted we go back. We did. Jack, I know I offended you, he said. I humbly apologize. But I want you to know that I've been working since then. Your first problem is where your family will live after you die. A realtor in our church has agreed to sell your house and give your wife his commission. I guarantee you that if you'll permit us, some other man and I will make the house payments until it's sold. Then I've contacted the owner of an apartment house down the street. He's offered your wife a three-bedroom apartment plus free utilities and an $850 a month salary in return for her collecting rents and supervising contractual repairs. The income from your house should pay for your daughter's college. I just want you to know that your family will be cared for. Jack cried like a baby. He died shortly thereafter. So wrapped in pain, he never accepted Christ. But he experienced God's love even while rejecting him. And his widow, touched by the caring Christians, responded to the gospel message. The point of this story, brothers and sisters, and our text today is to show us that those who belong to God show it by their love. Those who belong to God show genuine love. I want to dig into this passage in three different sections to examine this truth as we learn from it, learn from this passage, this truth. And the first thing I want to look at, verses 10 through 15, is that God's people show love versus hate. This section follows from the previous we talked about the last week, distinguishing the children of God from the children of the devil. And the difference between the two is love. There's a stark contrast that John is setting up between the children of God and the children of the devil. The purpose here is not so much to instruct us on the nature of the, those that don't know God, but on the nature of those who do. His point in all this is to make it very, very clear that believers do not hate they do not live in hate. They do not certainly remain in hate. Believers must not hate. He is making the point that love is a non-negotiable for a believer. That's the emphasis here. So this isn't a treatise on how much those who don't know the Lord can love or not. It's really a, a compelling point to say if you are a believer, you look like this, not like that. That's the point that he's making. He's addressing Christians here. And this stark contrast is meant to show us how totally unacceptable hatred is among God's people. And how instead love must mark our lives. Cain 
stands as the example of hatred here. John says we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain was not of God but of the evil one. Hatred and murder come from being of the evil one, not of God. He was jealous of his brother. His brother had something he didn't. And so, he got rid of his brother. He murdered him. Hatred takes from someone else to exalt the self. To promote the self. Cain hated Abel and murdered him. He hated him because he saw him as his rival. He saw him having things that he didn't have. So he hated him and then he murdered him. He took his life. He didn't want someone around who had more than he did in this sense. And so he took his life. He, to hate someone is to be so unhappy with them that you wish they were no longer alive. And I think as we look at that, we read the story of Cain and say, well, of course that's wrong. And of course I shouldn't do that. And I haven't done that. I haven't murdered anybody. But we know from Jesus' teaching in Scripture that it's deeper than just that. It's deeper than whether or not you, that you actually murder someone. Because John is teaching here that it's also to hate. And to hate someone is to, to wish they were no longer alive. It's murdering them in your heart. But I think we also have to kind of probe our own hearts a little deeper than that because hatred can also be uh, hidden under indifference. It's not necessarily wanting someone dead. It can be wanting someone to be dead to you. That that person is so negative in your life or so needy to you or so not like you that you'd rather they just didn't exist and so they're dead to you. And I can't see that being that far off of active hate and therefore murder. Indifference is really just veiled hate because we're not interested in preserving the person's life or promoting their success. We're interested in having them be eliminated from our lives. And I think we have to think that way. And I actually think that we're always presented throughout the day with the choice between love and hate. How we respond to somebody. Do we want to be for them or we would rather they didn't exist. We would rather that, that, that they didn't succeed. And that we did instead. And I think we're faced with this choice in every way. I was driving in this morning and was just aware of it. I'm driving down the street. And, um, and there's a right on Red Street coming in. And I'm going at a certain rate. And I'm like, this guy's going to pull in front of me. And this is my space. He's going to make me slow down. And I, start, I noticed this reaction right away. Like, I'm, all of a sudden, I became his enemy, his rival. He was fighting me for this space. And, and, and just not that that was terrible, but, that, but it's the same vein of thought. I either at that moment choose to love this person or to hate them. They're either my enemy and rival or I'm for them. doesn't mean I d agree with their behavior. But there's a different orientation. Because if I were driving down that street and it was my daughter in her car about to take the right on red in front of me, I would have a very different attitude. I'd be like, oh, look, Mary's here. Oh, let her out. And... She, you know, she's on my team. So why the difference? It's the orientation towards that person. And so this choice that John's presenting to us is always before us. In everything we do, we have the choice. Are we going to love or hate? And are we going to walk down that road of hate and where it leads? 
This is what characterizes the world, is what John is saying. This, this, uh, this propensity to hate and this propensity to live in hate characterizes the world. And so he adds this thing, don't be surprised when the world hates you because you're called to do something and be something very different than the world. You're called to love God and to love others. And in doing that, people will tend to hate you. You will, you will present something they don't like. So don't be surprised by that. This is the way of the world. This is the way of fallen humanity. Hating and division and rivalry is the way of the world. And, and Paul puts this all together actually in Galatians 5 as he describes the, the fruit of the Spirit in contrast to the fruit of the flesh. There's a lot of, a lot of different characteristics, but, but just I, I actually have the verse to show. It just shows you how many of the characteristics have to do with this idea of strife and hate and counting others as en- enemies. So it says, now the works of the flesh are evident. And then it lists a number of things. And then it says this, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. And then he says, uh, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the way of the world. This is the choice that we would make apart from transforming love of God in our lives. Now, to whatever degree we do it, we all do it left to ourselves. It's the way of the world. Dividing and hating and fighting and destroying. It's just interesting to look at humanity and look at history and to recognize this trend. To recognize the the different movements that come along because people are hated and oppressed. They rise up and rebel against that. And what do they usually end up doing? They end up oppressing their oppressors and oppressing those that aren't like them. It's just the history of humanity. Hating and being hated again and again. I I think of the French Revolution as a great example of that. If you're aware of that, the French Revolution started as a desire for freedom, equality, and brotherhood to overthrow the oppression. It ended with bloodshed, anarchy, mayhem, and then a dictator that arose, a warmongering dictator named Napoleon, who was responsible for six million deaths in Europe under his dictatorship. That's how it works, but you don't need to be a history major to know about this because all you need to do is to have ridden a school bus which is French Revolution in miniature, right? At least my school bus experience was like that. The the reign of terror in 20 minutes on your school bus back and forth from church. I actually think I have some pictures to show to illustrate that. The next one's a school bus picture. There you go. And if it wasn't the school bus, just look at the political scene, right? The left and the right, not interacting in love, not interacting in trying to understand, but divisions and hatred. This is the way of the world, hating and being hated. And we as believers are told we must not be characterized this way. John says we know that we're passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You see, when the love of God in Christ comes into our lives, when we recognize that he's loved us, even though we, to some degree, in in profound ways, have hated him, when we recognize that that he's loved us and given himself for us and received that good news, we experience new life in him. He dwells in us. He changes us. He puts love in our hearts. 
It's not perfect. It's not complete till we go to be with the Lord. But it is there. And there's a difference. And there's power to love. And so a believer must be characterized by love because the loving God dwells in them. And we abide in Him. We dwell in Him. We relate to Him. And He creates love in our hearts. He creates the ability to forgive others. He gives us the ability to love those unlike us. He gives us the ability to to reach out to those in need. He gives us the ability to, to love those who are negative. Christ does that in us. As He dwells in us. And if you Abide in the Lord. It will show. Love is the fruit of the eternal life of God in us. No murderer has this eternal life filling his or her soul. A murderer is someone committed to the lifestyle of hating others. Whether you're an actual murderer or not. You are committed to hating others seeing people as not like you, therefore to reject them as too needy to you, for you to help or too negative for you to be around. That's the lifestyle of someone without the love of God in them. And someone who continues in that does not know the love of God. We as believers, again, may struggle with these things. We've learned in 1 John, we will sin. We will fall short. There will be times, probably every day, A moment where we realize that's not what's going on. For me, at the moment where that guy pulled in front of me and I see what's going on, I'm like, Lord, help me to love that guy. But overall, we will see a difference in the love of God in our lives. And and our lives will not be characterized by hate versus the one like Cain whose life is. The difference here is abiding in love or abiding in life or abiding in death. Abiding in the life of God or abiding in life apart from God. To live apart from God. To live where you are not trusting Him, depending on Him, experiencing His great love, looking to Him, is to abide in death. And there will be a result. What you abide in will affect who you are. What you soak in will determine who you are. As I think about this, I can't help but think about the metaphor of a marinade. We marinate in things. We soak in things. We abide in things. And, and a marinade, right? Um, marinade, actually, I looked it up. It's really interesting. Um, I didn't know this, but marinade, the reason we use the word marinade, because it's like marine, like ocean, right? It's because the early uh, marinades by the Romans actually used seawater. They would soak meat in seawater. That's where we get the word. And we, we marinate stuff, right? We put meat in, sort of, in marinades to tenderize it, to add flavors. Um, is, right, we make marinades out of things like water, salt, oil, spices, and an acid. It helps soften the proteins and add flavor into the meat so that the meat becomes something that you enjoy. It's interesting as I'm reading this, I'm like, I have all this detail about marinades. I think I was hungry when I was doing this section of the message. But we all, I think, all enjoy different marinades. And we, as humans, marinate in one thing or the other, either, either life or death. Either God in His love and His ways or the world in its ways of hate. We choose to soak in one or the other. And certainly, even as believers, we can choose to soak in hate for a little while. And it's going to affect you. And John is calling us to abide in love. Abide in the Lord. Live in the love that He has for us. And love others not to hate. So which... Marinade are you choosing?
Take a look at your own life. Think about how you respond to other people. That's a great way to, to see what marinade you're soaking in. And, and in particular, the people that are not like you. Because it's easy to love those who are like you. In some way, we're just loving ourselves when we do that. But the people that are not like you, how do you relate to them? How about the people that are needy? You know that your relationship with them is not going to be kind of a two-way relationship. It's going to kind of be one way. How do you relate to them? How about the people who are negative? That when you're with them, it's hard. It's not just that they're needy, but they actually bring a degree of harm. Now, of course, there's, there are lines that shouldn't be crossed if someone's dangerous. I don't mean that. Just someone who's negative. How do you respond to those people? I think that's a great way to measure what you're abiding in. and not that, Again, not that we do this perfectly, but are you living in the love of Christ so that when you relate to these people who are different, and the priority here in the passage, by the way, is the people who are brothers and sisters in Christ, but it's all, all people as well. So within the church, the first, at least, those that are not like you, what's your heart towards them? Those that are needy, what's your heart towards them? Those that might be negative, what's your heart towards them? That's how we measure how the love of God is or isn't affecting us. So let's choose to soak in the love of God and find ourselves able to love others and realize that hatred is never an option. Love is to characterize us, not hate. So we show love, not hate. John goes on here to to help us understand love. He defines it, actually. Um, that song, How Do We Know What Love Is? Right? I want to know what love is. That old song by Forner is answered here in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Speaking of Christ, God in the flesh, he laid down his life for us. He gave his life for us. That is love. It's a contrast with Cain, right? Because what does Cain do? He lays down Abel's life for himself, right? Love lays down your own life for the other. That's what love is. It's laying down your life for the other. It's putting your life on the line for the good of the other. It's taking your time and your energy and your resources and your skills and transferring them for the benefit of the other versus trying to take the other person's resources, skills, time, and so forth for your own benefit merely. To the point even where Cain murders his brother because he wants that. He wants to be better than his brother. So Jesus is the contrast to Cain here. Jesus lays down his life for, for our gain versus Cain taking a life for his own gain. And we learn from Christ. We learn from him what it looks like. And, and there's a real concrete aspect to this because Jesus didn't just say, I loved you, I love you, and then didn't do anything. He said, I love you, and therefore, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take all of my life and lay all of it down for my beloved, for my people. And so John goes on saying, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers like Jesus, and then defines kind of what that looks like, lest we be tempted to think it's, it's enough just to feel love for someone. Feeling love is important, but there's more to it. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth, because this is what love is. It's laying down your life for another. 
It's laying down your life for another. That's what love is. It's wanting them to succeed. In a sense, it's vicariously living through their success and their joy and their flourishing. It's laying down your life, laying down your resources. And so, of course, it must be concrete. It says, if anyone has the world's goods, that's a, a word we'd seen earlier, the pride of life. Remember, we talked about, saw that earlier in John. It's the, the lifestyle. It's the stuff that you have in life. It's your means of living. Things like money and time and resources in your home and, and so forth and so on. And so there's a call to lay your life down in these concrete ways to take your resources and use them for the good of the other. And John says if, if you have things and you see someone in need and you don't use your things to help them, you close your heart against them, how does God's love abide in you? Actually, the word closes his heart, uh, and the King James, uh, I think, says closes your intestines or bowels is the old word. Um, literally, that's what it, that it is. And the word uh, in Scripture, the old understanding of, was that compassion actually was in your intestines, was in your gut. Um, and so the picture here is someone who sees someone in their need and there's no compassion. They close out. Nope, I'm not going to feel anything about this person. And what love looks like, it's compassion. What is compassion? Compassion is co-suffering. That's really literally what the word means. Passion is a word for, an old word for suffering. So calm passion. You suffer with them. As they are needy and as they're going through tough things in life, whatever their trials might be, whatever their needs might be. And there's all sorts of needs, right? It's not, it can be food and clothing and housing and things like that. It can, just be, it can be friendship. It can be companionship. It can be community. I think often in, in our day and age, that is the greatest need. People are alone and lonely. And it's seeing them in their suffering, in their hardship, and, and feeling for them, and thinking, what would it be like if I were in their shoes? I can feel what it's like. I care about what they're going through to the, to the point where I can feel it inside. That's the picture here. But when we see somebody with need, and we have the ability to help meet that need, and we close off the sense of love, of compassion. We're not loving. And we're called by God to love where we feel it and do something about it. Whatever it might be. Whatever degree that we can help. That's what love looks like. There needs to be this response. And this is what the love of God looks like, right? Jesus is the ultimate example here. And by the way, it's the strength to love like this. It's only as we ground ourselves in the amazing love of God in Christ and remember what He did because He looked at us in our sin and our brokenness and our lostness. He saw the crowds harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on us. He had compassion on you personally. This is personal. He saw you in your sin and your lostness. And he felt something for you that motivated him to live his life, to, to leave his throne in heaven, to take on flesh, to live a, a simple, humble life in, in a relatively poor family. He was no wealthy noble fed with a silver spoon. He lived a, a rough, common life. 
And he loved his heavenly Father and he loved us in that life. He lived the righteous life that we were all called to live for our sake because he felt something for us. He wanted to rescue us and he knew that, that God had called mankind, his Father, he with the Father of course, had called mankind to walk righteously and that we were broken, we had sinned, we were living in sin separate from God. And so he lived that life for us for our sake. And then offered up that righteous life on the cross to pay for our sins. So the penalty could be taken care of. And, and the, the wall of separation between a holy God and rebellious people like me and like you could be removed. He laid down His all for you and for me. He gave His all. Bearing sin. Put on a cross of shame. Alone, stripped, suffering in our place. That's the depth of His compassion for us. He loved us to that degree. He loved His Father. His Father loves us. He offered up that life and then of course, in that perfect sacrifice, He had to be vindicated. He had to be raised from the dead victorious over sin and death for our sake, for the glory of the Father and the Son and in the Spirit, of course, but for our sake. That's what love looks like. Jesus laid down His life for us. And when we get that love, we get what it means. And we get the implications that we're forgiven and we're free and now God uses all things for our good. All things are ours, Scripture says. God uses all things for our good. He promises to meet our needs. He promises to keep us. He promises to bring us home to be with Him in glory. And so we look at life very differently when we get that, when we understand. We no longer need to be living for ourselves and our survival to acquire goods and to somehow create a, a reality where we're safe apart from God. We're freed to give. We're freed to love. We're free to know Him and depend on Him and ask Him, Oh Lord, I don't want to love this needy person left to myself. It's hard. I don't want to deal with this negative person. It's hard, but You have loved me. Help me to love. Lord, I don't want to let this guy cut in front of me. Help me. Love him. Whatever's going on, bless him and his family. It changes our orientation in all these ways, significant and, and seemingly trivial ways when we get the love of the Lord. And we're called to love others like He has loved us. It's really interesting actually. Jesus teaches us that when we love others like this, we're loving Him. He's the ultimate undercover boss because He is in disguise with all those people who are needy and negative and not like us. And when we love them, especially the brothers and sisters in Christ, for His sake, we are loving Him. And you're probably thinking if you read through it, the passage in Matthew 25 where Jesus is talking about final judgment. And how does He distinguish between those that belong to Him and those who don't? We know that we're saved by Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, right? It's a gift putting our trust in Christ. We don't earn the gift. But when you are one who's come to know the love of God, you are transformed and you look like Jesus to some extent. And so that's the standard by which He will judge all people. So uh, the passage in Matthew 25, you're probably familiar with it perhaps. 
It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will say, answering them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. When we know the love of God, we are empowered to love others. And in loving others, we are actually loving Jesus, the ultimate undercover boss. And as I share this, and as I prepare this, I was not thinking of how far you or we fall short of this. There's certainly room for growth here. But I was aware of your amazing example of doing this. Grateful for those in our church involved in fostering children and adults. Grateful for those who have adopted foster children and adopted children. I'm grateful for those serving with fostering care. Grateful for those who reach out to those in need in our church. Grateful for those who care for those going through trials. Grateful for those who have cared for our widows and single moms. Thank you for those who are caring for Soila and Maureen. Harrington, Sue Drury, I think of Gwen, Cindy, others who are by themselves. Those that are single and those that reach out and love them, thank you. Thank you for those who help with feeding the hungry in our city. Those who have contributed to Sacred Hearts Food Bank right around the corner. Just a wonderful opportunity. Thank you for those who do that. Those involved in Operation Christmas Child, we're running it again this year. Thank you to those who contribute to the Benevolence Fund. This Currently, we have a surplus in our benevolence fund, and that's a good thing because we need to be ready for the lean years. Thank you. Thank you for those who have expressed interest in being part of our crisis care team. We're still looking to form this team. that will be a team that can extend biblical counseling and care in crisis. Thank you. I'm grateful for you guys. 
And I'm grateful for the love of God that I see. And may we be stirred up by this and freed to love all the more. Finally, and more quickly, those who know God show love and experience confidence. That's where John finishes this. It's interesting as you read it, like, well, this is interesting where he takes this, but it makes sense. He says, by this, by this life of loving others, we, uh, we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. There's actually a benefit of living a life of love, of reassurance that we do belong to the Lord. To recognize the miracle of the love of God in our hearts. And I, I want you as believers to recognize that, to see what he's done in your heart. It's not perfect, but there's something going on there. And to experience assurance. And certainly when we compare our love to the love of Christ, we will be tempted to have our hearts condemn us. That's what he's getting at here. For whenever our heart condemns us, there's assurance. God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. He knows our hearts. This, this letter is full of reasons to be assured that we genuinely belong to the Lord. God has given us those things. God has given us this standard of love to help us see. And, and perhaps if we don't see love in our heart, to help us recognize, well, maybe I don't belong to Him. But for those of us who do and do see this love, I've just cited many examples. It should cause in us just an appreciation. He is at work. And though I'm weak, and though I have lots of room to grow in this, He is at work. I do see Him in me. And, and it should give us a confidence that we truly are His children. And John goes on with this. This confidence should propel us before Him in prayer. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, he says in verse 21, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commands and do what pleases Him. There's a confidence before God to ask for things in prayer when we know we belong to Him and we're walking closely with Him. The, the other side of that we need to understand that is if we dabble in sin and we turn away from Him, we're going to lose that confidence. And God in His goodness as a good Father will inhibit our prayers. Actually, 1 Peter 3, He tells husbands to live in an understanding way with your wife. So understand who she is, made by God, all the things that come with that, all the truths, and to, to be there supporting her, understanding her, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So your prayers can be hindered by not loving and living in that. That is a reality. And John wants something much better. He wants confidence. He wants you to go in prayer and know that, that you are abiding with Him. And though not perfectly, you are abiding with Him. And His orientation towards you is, is a father pleased with his son or daughter who, who loves Him and loves others and wants to stay close. And He loves to answer the prayers of such people. Guys, we have the greatest superpower available to us. We have a superpower of being able to ask the Lord of the whole universe, the sovereign, all-glorious one, for things according to his will, according to love, and to have him answer. To be able to pray for our loved ones and our neighbors and have things happen. There's no greater superpower. It's better than anything in fantasy, better than Superman, better than the brains of Tony Stark, better than having all six infinity stones. You have access to God himself. And you can pray and things happen. And so the, the motivation in that is don't 
don't go near the kryptonite, Superman. <laughs> don't go near the kryptonite. Don't dabble in sin. Don't let hate rule your life. Stay close to Jesus. Ask him for love. Retain your superpower in him. Don't dabble. Live a life of love. Refuse hate. Be confident. Watch God use you. Those who know God live lives of genuine love. So as I close, let me just ask you to take a moment and ask the Lord, what one step can I take of faith and obedience? Don't try to do 20 different things at once. Just one little step to take in response to his word because I trust that you're hearing him speak, not me. And then just bring that thing before him. Ask him for help. Give him thanks for his grace. Remember his great love for you. So let's take a, a minute or so to do that quietly, and then uh, we'll transition, Pastor Toby will transition us into communion.